Good morning. I'd like you to join me in your Bibles in John 17. Our mission statement is knowing Him and making Him known. I have to be honest, we stole it from Jesus. It was His mission statement for His disciples in Mark 3.14. We're told that Jesus chose the twelve so that they would be with Him and that He could send them out. So they could be with Him to know Him and He could send them out to make Him known. I think most of us major in the first part of that and minor in the second part. And so I want to challenge us this morning with making Him known. And to do that, I want to look at one verse in John chapter 17, and that's verse 18. Jesus praying to the Father says, As you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. And if you think Jesus is just talking about the twelve, read verse 20, because there it says He's not just talking about them, but those who would believe through their word. That's you. Jesus has sent you. One of His last words before ascending into heaven was go. He didn't tell you to sit on your blessed assurance. He said, go. Go where? Into the world. You say, well, what is the world? That word is used three ways in the Bible. One, it's used of the planet. Acts 17.24 says, God made the world and all things in it. So the world is the mountains, the oceans, the rivers, the trees, the animals. It's the planet. But then there's a second way this word is used in the Bible. And that's of a perspective. Three times in the five chapters before John 17, Jesus refers to Satan as the ruler of this world. He is the dictator. He is in control. He is promoting his agenda. And what is his agenda? What is the perspective of this Satan-ruled world? Well, we get a concise version of it in 1 John 2.16. It says, all that is in the world is the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. It's the lust of the flesh. What's that pleasure? It's the lust of my eyes, possessions. And it's the pride of life, prestige. The perspective of the world is I want to feel good, I want to have a lot of stuff, and I want to make a name for myself. Make me happy, make me rich, make me famous. So you see, the world is not just a place, the planet, it's a perspective, it's a philosophy, it's a world view. It is a world of ideas contrary to God. It is a perspective that promotes my interests over God's interests. And Satan's strategy may surprise you. In 2 Corinthians 4.4, Paul says of Satan that he is the God of this world. And as such, he blinds the minds of unbelievers from the light of the gospel. You know how he blinds men's minds? A few chapters later, it says he disguises himself as an angel of light. And it says his servants disguise themselves as apostles of Christ. The primary way that Satan blinds men and women to the gospel is to make them religious. To give them a counterfeit message. You see, his goal is not to take people 
deeper into darkness and make everybody a serial killer. His tactic is to make people religious with a self-righteous religion. Because a self-righteous religion just puts a veneer over my pride, a veneer over my selfish desires. And if men are content with that, he's accomplished his goal. You see, in contrast to the light of the gospel, he wants to give you a false light, a night light, and make you satisfied with that. And then there's a third way this word world is used in the Bible, and that's of people. In John 3, 16, it says, God so loved the world. Does God love the planet? I don't know. He's going to burn it up one day. Does God love the perspective of Satan? No. Who does God love? He loves people. So when Jesus sends you into the world, which world is he sending you into? Well, I don't think you can dissect them. You see, he is sending you into the lives of people all over this planet who are blinded by Satan's perspective. And that's why we're to go. Because we have the only thing that can transform their perspective. And that is the message of the gospel of the glory of Jesus. We go to make him known. You say, well, Dan, isn't that a dangerous mission? Yes. But it's not a mission impossible because the Spirit of God is in you. And that's why I think Jesus says right before this and right after this, right after telling the Father he's sending us in verse 18, he says on either side of that, asking the Father, sanctify them. And that word sanctify means to set apart, to make you separate. So the question is, how do you go and remain separate? How do you go into the world without becoming of the world? How do you engage the world without embracing the world? How do you live on that edge? And before we talk about how to do it, I want to talk about how not to do it. Because I think a lot of Christians live far from the edge. So I've written down four ways to live far from the edge. The first is isolation. Throughout Christian history, there have been examples of this. In the second and third centuries, the aesthetics would, would uh, withdraw from civilization. They decided to get away from the world. They'd go out and live in the wilderness. Some of them lived on poles high in the sky for years to try to isolate themselves from what they considered to be the world. Later, the church established monasteries where people would isolate from the world, and often they would get in the, the monastery and they would isolate from each other by taking vows of silence. heard about a guy who joined the monastery and took a vow of silence. They said every seven years he could say two words. After the first seven years, he said, bed hard. Seven years later, he said, food bad. Seven years later, he said, I quit. His superior said, I'm not surprised all you've done since you got here was complain. <laughs> so you can take the man out of the world. You can't take the world out of the man. How do we isolate today? Well, if we choose to, we can live in a Christian bubble. 
We can live in a Christian subculture. You can go to Christian school, Christian college. You can go to a Christian bookstore. You can watch a Christian movie. You can listen to a Christian rock band. You can go on vacation and go to a Christian theme park. You can take a Christian cruise. You can call a Christian plumber. My question is, when do we go out into the world and engage people who don't know Jesus? Some people do everything within the walls of their church. We, we, we figured out a few years ago we had too many meetings. We were gathering too much, and we were eating up people's time, and, and so we, we did less services so that you could go out and be impactful in this community. See, Jesus didn't just say, come. He said what? Let me give you a telltale sign that you're practicing isolation. Your Christian life is boring. Jesus said you are the salt of the earth. What's your purpose? To go out and give flavor to this earth. If you're in the salt shaker, guess what? That's boring. Jesus said you are the light of the world. If you're under a bushel, you're not accomplishing your purpose. That's boring. The Bible says you have been equipped with spiritual battle armor. And some of us are in the kitchen using our two-edged sword to swat flies. That's boring. When I was a teenager, I took a 10-week course in scuba diving. I was down south part of Cape in what was called the natatorium. It can't be there anymore, but it was an indoor pool. Concrete building, concrete pool. I was trained in that pool how to breathe, how to empty my mask underwater, how to adjust the oxygen, the speed to descend, the speed to ascend. Learned all about scuba diving. Problem was, I never got to the ocean. I spent all my time in the swimming pool. Can you imagine you put on these tanks for 10 weeks and you swim around in a little swimming pool? Oh, there's a corner. Kind of looks like the other corner. It was boring. Well, I want to suggest that you are prepared. You are trained. You are equipped for spiritual deep sea diving. There is a world of people out there who need to be rescued. And some of us are isolating ourselves in the swimming pool. Second way you can live far from the edge is legalism. If I ask you, are you saved by keeping the law, you would say no, adamantly. If I ask you, are you sanctified by keeping the law, some of you may get a little fuzzy on that. Because you see, it makes sense naturally that I would grow by obeying rules. The Galatians thought that. They thought the longer their list of rules, the more spiritual they were. And Paul addresses that in Galatians chapter 3 and verse 2. And he says, this is the only thing I want to find out from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by hearing with faith? That's easy. Hearing with faith. And then he says this in verse 3. 
Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? You see, you don't start with the Spirit and grow by the flesh. You don't start with faith and grow by law. Paul says in Colossians 2.6, As you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him. How did you receive Him? By faith. How do you walk in Him? By faith. Anybody here been in a church that's all about rules? No drinking, no smoking, no rock and roll, no dancing, no TV, no movies, no, no, no. Can I tell you something that may shock you? Rules are worldly. Rules are worldly. You say, well, you better support that with some scripture, pal. 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 20. If you have died with Christ to the elementary principles of the world, what are the elementary principles of the world? He goes on to tell us. Why, as if you were living in the world, do you submit yourselves to decrees such as do not handle, do not taste, do not touch? When you have rules, do not, do not, do not, Paul says that's worldly. And then he goes on to say, verse 22, sorry, which all refer to things destined to perish with use in accordance with the commandments and teachings of men. Listen, these are matters which have, to be sure, the appearance of wisdom in self-made religion and self-abasement and severe treatment of the body but are of no value against fleshly indulgence. Self-made religion is of no value. And when you embrace that, you are really embracing Satan's counterfeit. Jesus' chief critics were the Pharisees. You know what the word Pharisees means? It's an Aramaic word that means the separated ones. How did they separate themselves? They took the law and added laws upon laws upon laws. They had so many rules, they couldn't count their rules. And Jesus points out that their legalism produced two things in their lives, pride and hypocrisy. Pride, or Matthew 6, he says, they practice righteousness to be seen by men. And hypocrisy, Matthew 23, 3, they say things and don't do them themselves. Now, I hope you know that. But you know what we often do when somebody gets saved? We immediately give them rules. You need to do this. Read your Bible and pray an hour a day. You need to do this, 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 and you need to not do this, this, this. We give them rules. Why do we do that? Safety. It's kind of like if we lived on a plateau and God had his fence around the plateau and we say, you know, for safety reasons, we should probably build some more fences. So we build fences inside of fences inside of fences, and pretty soon we feel safe because we've got our fences in place. But see, fences are not safe. Paul wrote to the Galatians in Galatians 5.1 and says, it's for freedom that Christ sets you free. Don't subject yourself to that yoke of slavery again. You see, you're going back to Satan's false counterfeit when you build fences 
And we build them for safety, but the reality is, if you lead someone to Christ and you give them fences, or even in your own life with your own kids, if you have so many fences, what they do is they jump over a fence and they realize there was no consequence to that. Then they jump over another one of your fences and they say there's no, there's no consequences. And pretty soon what do they do? They jump over one of God's fences. And there are consequences. The telltale sign that you're legalistic is that you're judging other people. You have made yourself the behavior police. Your relationship with Christ is performance-based, and so you're always grading other people, rating other people by your checklist. Someone tells me, you know, their, their idea of worldliness is, you know, you, you don't smoke, you don't drink, you don't dance, you don't mow your yard on Sunday. I like to ask them, well, if that's what worldliness is, then what is worldliness in Africa where they have no lawns? See, Jesus' list of worldliness was not actions, it was attitudes. It was my desire, it was my pride, it was those things inside of me that can't be covered up with a veneer of religion. Third way we live far from the edge is confrontation. In the first century, there was a group of Jews known as the Zealots. Their mission was to overthrow Rome by force. I think some Christians are zealots. They love to fight. They've got a lot of mad in them and no mercy. They go out into the world with signs that say, turn or burn. They go out into the world with signs that say, gays are going to hell. They burn the Koran. They bomb abortion clinics. They engage their neighbors in arguments about politics, morals, doctrines. They're confrontational. I remember being at a meal in a restaurant one time with a, a bunch of couples, and, and uh, <clears throat> the waiter came up and said, uh, would you like some cocktails? And the lady sitting at the head of the table said, we don't drink, we're Christians. Very confrontational, very demeaning. Guy walks up to do his job, he gets ambushed. You ever want a do-over? I want to go back to that time and, and go, I'll take one. or walk out, because what she was doing was a detriment to the cause of Christ. See, that's the problem with confrontation. You're not loving people, you're hating people. You're not reaching people, you're alienating them. You're not walking in humility, you're walking in pride, and if you're walking in that kind of pride, guess who needs to be confronted? You do because you're worldly. Fourth way, we walk far from the edge is compromise. This is the person who's in the spiritual CIA, the undercover Christian who infiltrates the enemy camp. He's a camouflage Christian. He's a chameleon. He becomes like wherever he is. 
This is the person who engages the world by embracing the world. The church in Corinth tried this. They got out into Corinth, but too much of Corinth got into them. And they had no impact. If this is you, you're probably sitting here this morning saying, preach it, Dan. I'm not isolated. I'm not legalistic. I'm not confrontational. In fact, all my friends are unbelievers. You know why? Because you're just like them. You're not on mission. You have gone AWOL. Do any of these tactics describe you? Isolation? Legalism? Confrontation? Compromise? If so, you're not living on the edge. You say, well, how do we live on the edge? How do we walk that fine line between going and remaining separate? Let me give you two key steps. Number one, go like Jesus went. In verse 18 of John 17, what does he say? As you sent me, I send them. We are to go as Jesus went. Was Jesus isolated? Did Jesus live in a monastery? No. He was totally engaged with his society. I love Luke 15.1. It says, Now all the tax collectors and the sinners were coming near to him to listen to him. They were at home with Jesus. They were comfortable with Jesus. And the next verse says, The Pharisees and the scribes began to grumble, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. The religious people were grumbling. The irreligious people were comfortable. Jesus was so engaged with his society that he got this reputation in Matthew eleven nineteen. 19. He's a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Was Jesus separated by legalism? No. If you read the Gospels, you'll see he went out of his way to break rules. He healed on the Sabbath day. He picked grain on the Sabbath day. He was accused of being a glutton because he was always eating with somebody. This is his fourth time at the buffet line. He was accused of being a drunk. Every time we see the guy, he's got a cup in his hand. He's a drunk. His first miracle in John 2, he created 180 gallons of wine. The good stuff. You know, I'm convinced there are plenty of churches today that wouldn't have Jesus as a member. They'd say, I don't know about that Jesus guy. He runs with the wrong crowd. He seems to like his wine a little bit too much. He frequents places I wouldn't go. Was Jesus separated by confrontation? No. If he was confrontational with sinners, they wouldn't have been comfortable sitting with him. The only people he was combative with were the self-righteous religious leaders. Did Jesus ever compromise? No. Never sinned. You are to go like Jesus went. So let me ask you a few questions. Don't answer out loud. Who are you more comfortable with, self-righteous religious people or non-religious people? Are the modern-day Pharisees grumbling about you or applauding you? 
Would you go to a bar with a coworker for the opportunity to share the gospel? Would you miss church to go fishing with your colleague at work? If we canceled services next weekend and said, we, we want you all to go out and have a tailgate party before the Super Bowl with your unbelieving friends, would you grumble or would you go? And do you even have enough unsaved friends to have a party? How many unbelievers do you know that would call you friend? We are to go like Jesus went. Second step, we're to be distinct like Jesus was. He says, set them apart in the truth. Your word is truth. How was Jesus distinct? He engaged his, his society, but he was distinct in two primary ways. One was his message, and the other was his character. And we're to be the same. We are to speak the truth of the message. The message of religion is spelled D-O, do. The message of the gospel is spelled D-O-N-E, Done. The message of religion that people have the idea of because it's the perspective of this world is do, do, do. It's a religion based on works. And if you are practicing separation by isolation, you are reinforcing Satan's message. You may tell yourself, I'm being an example to my neighbor, I'm modeling Christianity, but if you are not sharing the gospel with them, all they're seeing is that you go to church, you're good parents, you discipline your kids, you're model citizens, and you have a nice yard. Problem is, you look just like the neighbors on the other side who are legalistic, self-righteous Pharisees. And the message that they are getting is Christians act like Christians. Christians keep rules. Christians do certain things and don't do other things. And if you are practicing separation by legalism, you're reinforcing Satan's message. Somebody asks you, why don't you drink? Say, because I'm a Christian. Why don't you dance? Because I'm a Christian. Why didn't you come to the office party? Because I'm a Christian. See, don't blame Jesus for that. When you say Christianity is about my little fences, you're making people believe that Christianity is a works-based situation. And it's the farthest thing from that. Now, if You don't drink because you're an alcoholic and Jesus sets you free. Give him credit for that. If your neighbor comes to you and says, why why are you loving on me like nobody else ever has? Give Jesus credit for that because he commanded you to love them. But don't take your fences and confuse people by thinking that's Christianity. You see, we are to go out preaching the message of the gospel. And when you do that, it will separate you from the Pharisees and their message of works, and it will separate you from other people because the truth divides. In John chapter 6, when Jesus talked about his death, his body and his blood, it divided the crowd. 
In fact, it says many of his disciples were not walking with him anymore. Jesus' death is offensive. The cross is offensive. In 1 Corinthians 1.23, Paul said, We preach Christ crucified, and it is a stumbling block. See, you can talk about Jesus walking on the water. You can talk about him healing the sick. You can talk about him being your friend. You can talk about him being an example. And people will nod in approval. But when you talk about the cross, people get offended. That word stumbling block is the Greek word scandalon, from which we get our word scandalous. Why is the cross scandalous? Why is it offensive? Because it strikes at the very heart of the issue. You see, the cross strikes down my pride because Jesus did it all. And the cross strikes down my flesh because the Bible says I died with Christ. It's the end of me. And that's an offensive message. Religion says keep your pride. Keep your fleshly attitudes and just make some cosmetic changes. Religion says it all works from the outside in. The gospel says what? It works from the inside out. And to receive the gospel, I have to humble myself and really eliminate myself. And that's offensive. Now make sure that it's the message that divides and not you. Some of you are divisive because of your personality and you blame it on the gospel. That's why the Bible says we are to speak the truth in love. That's why the Bible says we are to season what we say with grace. So it's palatable to the hearer. You know what will happen when you go out and share the gospel with unbelievers? They will ask you questions you can't answer. You know what that will make you do? It will make you go back to the Word and begin to study it and take it in so that you can use it in their lives. And guess what? Reading your Bible won't be something you do just because it's on your to-do list. It will be something you do because it's alive in your life and you're sharing it with other people. We're to be distinct in our message. And secondly... We're to be distinct in our character. It's to be the truth lived out in our lives. God's truth is the polar opposite to the world's perspective. The world promotes selfishness. It's okay to be selfish. The Bible says we're to consider others more important than ourselves. The world promotes greediness. It's okay to be all about it's mine, mine, mine. The Bible says it's more blessed to give than to receive. The world promotes personal ambition. Make a name for yourself. The Bible says he must increase and I must decrease. When I live out the Bible, I am saying I want Jesus to be famous. And I'll be a nobody. You see, when you live out the message of the Word of God, People will not only hear the truth of a a gracious Savior, they will see the truth of a gracious messenger. So we are to go into the world like Jesus did and be distinct from the world like Jesus was in message and in character.
And as we go, I'll say it again, this is a dangerous mission. Temptations are going to be greater. Sacrifices are going to be greater because people's lives are all messy. And they're going to need you to lay down your life for them. And the risks are going to be greater because a lot of people are not going to understand and you're going to catch some friendly fire from people you thought were on your team. I think that's why Jesus said in Matthew 10, 16, when he sent the disciples out, he said, I send you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. Now, what chance does a sheep have in a wolf's den? How are you as a sheep going to go out into the wolf's den and not get eaten up? It's only one way. You've got to stay near the shepherd. But that doesn't mean that you don't go out. Because you remember when Jesus told us to go out in Matthew 28? He said, go and make disciples of all nations, teaching them, baptizing them, so forth. And then he said what? Lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. I don't think that's a promise for everybody. I think that's a promise for the person who goes. And when we go, there's a special sense in which Jesus goes with us. Have you experienced that? Doesn't happen sitting on your couch. But when you start to engage people in the gospel, Jesus shows up in a special way in your life. And you have a relationship with him that is far from boring. It is exciting. It is meaningful. It is purposeful. It is what you are made to do as a believer. It is your mission. Can I challenge you this year to be missional? to go and impact our world with the gospel, invest our lives in them to see people changed, to know the Lord, not just for today, but forever. Let's be those people in the coming years.